0: Hello, welcome. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast sponsored by Betfair. It's the Monday pod. I'm Ali Maxwell. He's George Ellick. We're going to talk all things EFL, weekend action. Uh, Interesting weekend it was too. George, how are you?
1: I am good, thank you. Uh, Looking forward to spending Valentine's Day chatting to the person that I love, my wife, this evening at dinner. (laughs) Very
0: good, (laughs) very good. I thought you were going to say Ryan Valentine who had Mm. a career with Darlington, Wrexham, Darlington, Hereford United, AFC Telford and Ballatown and Wales under 21s. Happy day, I guess, is what he says. Just happy day. On the 14th of February, uh, we've got lots to chat about and a great enthusiasm to do so. So why don't we plough on? I think in the Championship, I'd like to, if you'll let me, make a running order where we start with a, a few teams that we just haven't spoken about a huge amount in recent weeks for one reason or another. One of them for one very obvious reason. Barnsley, who racked up their only their third win of the season in beating QPR on Saturday, it was their first league win since the third of November, just their third of the whole campaign as we are in mid-Feb, and they beat QPR and they deserved to win. George Poyet as Baggy in midweek broke the record for the longest wait for a first win for a Barnsley manager in history, but he didn't have to wait too much longer,
1: and you know it made me look like a bit of a mug on the betting show on Thursday, having put up QPR to win this one. You know, but we can talk about QPR in a second, but I think we have to focus here on Barnsley getting getting a massive win. You know, it still isn't too late for them to put a run of form together. Um, they'd only have to put together, what do you reckon, two wins, two more wins, and they'll probably be, probably elevate them out of the relegation zone. Just how poor the bottom four are, um, you know, with mitigating circumstances for Derby. I, I can't remember an occasion where you have three of a bottom four who are picking up points at such a a, um, you know, a slow pace, basically both Reading and until here, Barnsley and Peterborough feeling like they are pulling teeth for every point that they win. Um, but for Barnsley to beat, not only win the game, but to beat a QPR side who um, have been one of the form sides, of, sides in the division who came here with the reali- realistic expectation of winning a game to put them in the promotion places um, to get promoted to the Premier League is, is a massive win. Um, And Barnsley were better. You know, this isn't the first time recently we've seen them put in a a much improved performance at home, especially. Um, You know, they were unlucky to lose 1-0 to Bournemouth. They were fairly unlucky to lose 1-0 to Cardiff at home. And then they put in a a similar performance level, maybe a bit better again against QPR and then got the three points they deserved. You know, They had 19 shots, QPR's 12. Um, Domingos Kina is a player who, as you said on Quest, his talent has never been in doubt. But we are yet to really see him consistently perform. Um, I think maybe, you know, David Marshall has been a, an inspired signing for QPR. I, I have a feeling he'd probably like it back. I, I think he might feel like given the, the contact he got um, in palming the ball onto the crossbar, he would probably feel like he maybe could have uh, diverted it away from goal. Um, But, you know, it, it wasn't just that one moment. It wasn't the smash and grab. Barnsley had plenty of chances and QPR struggled to create too much. Elias Chair had a couple of opportunities. Lee Wallace probably had the best chance of the game, which was a pretty low XG chance um, at the, you know, shooting at the, at the near post, a decent save over the top of the crossbar. I think QPR missed Willock, who was out here um, massively. Uh, I think now we're probably looking at a, maybe a, a situation where, Willock might even be more important than chair to this QPR side, um, but let's un- not take any.
0: Undoubtedly, I think.
1: Well, I, d- I think you could doubt it. Surely, <laughs> I'm um, sure
0: Big Ilias doubts it and his family. Yeah. but I'm not sure so, there'll be many QPR fans that doubt it. Certainly, they're, the, the, they're la- the ones well, that see y- them most. Well, you say
1: day. that the, the, the Larry QPR fans on my um, on my tube back from the Cayenne Prince on on Wednesday certainly were referring to why is he taking off our best player after an hour? Um, which would suggest that uh, they still think he is their best player. But yeah, I mean, it's you know for QPR, it's, it's a blip. It's it's not a good result. They've come up against the worst side in the, in the division, who didn't play like the worst side in the division, um, and unlike Bournemouth and Cardiff, weren't able to to edge it out. Um, but what, what you know we can say with some degree of confidence, even though Barnes's performance at Luton and at Huddersfield have me somewhat doubting if they'll be able to replicate this kind of form when they travel to Coventry and Hull uh, this week. Um, if this level of performance from Barnsley at home is consistent between now and the end of the season, that alone could get them enough points to, to at least be on the brink of, of safety come the end of the season.
0: Yeah, they've got three of their next four away from home, don't they? So that, that mm. is a bit of a barrier to hashtag momentum. If you consider away games to be harder than home games, which I think most people do. Um, but I, I enjoyed this performance. I enjoyed the smile that you could hear uh, through Asbaggy's post-match interview, the relief. Um, but he spoke well. And yeah, it's hard not to be pleased for someone who's who's moved over to England, uh, who's clearly at a club where there's an existing toxicity of sorts i guess between the the fans and the ownership you walk into that as the as the main man tasked with turning it around and you don't have really the tools to do so initially at least uh, but as you mentioned kina and Bassi have given them something that they definitely didn't have in their team beforehand it was basically a glaring gap in their squad up to this point before the start of the season. Just creativity, like technical quality. Clearly, Callum Styles is a player that we like, a versatile player who here played right wing back um, and did so pretty well. You know, he he is technical. I don't think he's necessarily a hugely creative passer. None of their central midfield options up till January were either. Corley Woodrow, at one point, looked like he could kind of score and create, um, but that's probably a year in the wing mirror now and he's been out long term. So um, both of these players... Kina offers more of a threat from range as well, but Bassi, who's really good in tight spaces, you know, obviously someone that, that I've spoken about quite a lot before for kind of fun but strange reasons and who, you know, when I first came across him, um, we were quite keen to sort of paint him as a bit of a Ben Rama type. And I think, you know, watching his clips back from this game, he is not, as good as side Ven Rama, but as a player, as a as a comparison, it's not the worst shout in the world. And someone who has had a pretty up and down few years over in France. But um, as as Baggy said, and I thought this was a good point. Kina and Bassi have come in with none of the baggage from the first half of the season. Like they don't, not that they don't care about what happens to Barnsley from this point, but they're not. They haven't carried like this this terrible doom and gloom these terrible performances they've come in quite fresh and they're also the players who are who are giving them something extra in the final third so yeah it was good fun let's talk about the game on Sunday Swansea 3 Bristol City 1 uh, another game for Bristol City with a lot of goals uh, they are they have become somewhat surprisingly the league's entertainers in a sense I, I, I don't suspect the fans find it hugely entertaining that they seem to concede two or three goals every game but certainly going forward and in transition they continue to be very exciting That Semenyo Weiman Martin front three combining for the first goal Semenyo uh, receiving the ball uh, in transition playing a great through ball to Weiman to finish it was really exciting for Semenyo that means four goals and four assists in his last seven games that's just in the last calendar month so it really has been uh, sensational play he showed a nice touch to set up Martin as well in the first half but this was about Swansea turning it around uh, after a chastening defeat against Stoke in midweek. Certainly had a few people questioning the process of Russ Martin and he admitted that it had been a very tough week for him professionally and personally uh, after that. Not not an incredible performance here for sure, but they did enough in coming from behind, in making the most of, of defensive lapses from Bristol City and, and kind of um, yeah cashing in on them. I think the player that I wanted to bring up is is Obafemi, who scored the first goal, uh, obviously scored the winner against Blackburn the Saturday previously, um, and I think quite an important player for them from now on to the end of the season. He had a really disrupted first half of the campaign through injury. And also because Pirot started so well in terms of his goal scoring, it it, it didn't seem like anyone could come in and take his place. But Obafemi started the last four games, he scored two goals in that time. And just thinking about him as a player, looking into the stats a bit more, he very specifically offers something different to Pirot, who obviously we were enjoying so much in the first part of the season. He's scoring those screamers with his left peg, looked like he was linking play pretty well. Obafemi, I think, suits the number nine role in this team way more. And Perrault played as as one of the two tens in this game, and you know got a goal himself. And and I think that makes sense. To be honest, you know, I was looking at Perrault's shot stats for the season. Not a single shot in the six yard box all season. You'd expect a number nine, a poacher, a penalty box poacher, to have. At least an attempt in the six yard box out of his 67 overall but 43 percent of them have come from outside the box this season so you start to see a profile of a guy who is actually much happier outside the box having a go from range than he is breaking his neck to get into the six yard box i think those stats are pretty unusual for a number nine and i think russ martin's probably noticed that obafemi on the other hand only limited minutes, but he's had 21 shots this season and only three of 21 outside the box. He, he's not someone who's going to shoot from range. That's not his strength. His strength is running in behind, penetration, trying to sniff sniff chances in the box. So I think that's that's an interesting one to watch for Swans going forward. There'll be people listening who'll remember Perot scoring goals in the first half of the season. Think of him maybe as a real goal-scoring number nine. Maybe we're going to see in the second half of the season his role adapt and Obafemi take on uh, the mantle. And, and I think they need it because... Only Barnsley have scored fewer goals in the six-yard box. So if, if Perot can adapt well to that, maybe with someone next to him offering a bit more creativity and mobility, and then Obafemi with the pure penalty box goal threat. That could be a nice balance, and that's what I'm looking for, because Swans have been disappointing going forward all season, really, given the amount of possession that they have. Um, also, shout out Cyrus Christie. Got a nice goal and assist here. I know Swans have been, Swans fans have been really surprised, pleasantly, about how he's filled Ethan Laird's boots. Uh, he's just a good player at the level, isn't he? might not be as exciting with his youthful exuberance of, of Ethan Laird, but just a solid player. Uh, but Bristol City, George, we had a... A Nigel Pearson quote. After this game, he said, when things go badly, it's always, yeah, well, have you worked on it? I can't work on players' hearts. I'm not a cardiologist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think when you are consistently underperforming, um, the, the notion that there's there's nothing you can do about it and it all falls to the players and their desire is, is misplaced. I mean, I know there are some Bristol City fans who... Think that they have a particularly difficult group of of, of players. Um, and would I would argue that the the lack of success over the last few seasons, even prior to Nigel Pearson's appointment, will will point at that. Uh, but from what Pearson is saying, I don't for a second think that this is a side who you know who themselves are uncoachable due to their mentality. Uh, I don't think that is fair I I don't think that's ever really going to be the case you know you've got a talented group of footballers here who have in the not so um, recent history won games of football and done so in in pretty trying circumstances you know you've got the the 3-2 win against Cardiff um, the other day where they came back from a goal behind uh, to come back and and win the game 3-2 you've got the Reading game the game literally before this one um, where they won the game 2-1 and saw out the last 15 minutes you know it it just seems pretty um convenient, but then at the same time you know the the flip side to that is you you're asking Nigel Pearson here who is a man probably without the answers um, to explain what's going on, and naturally he's probably not going to blame himself and you know often we we forget that at the end of every game of football. Um, every Saturday at kind of five o'clock, you've got 72 managers having a microphone thrust under their mouth. And then we live and die by what they say. And often they probably don't have much to say. Um, I think we live and die by what we say. We do. But (laughs) then, you know, we're we're meant to plan for this. This is our job for Nigel Pearson, you know, making a, you know, he's going to be at a loss. But it's actually
0: quite, to be honest, it's quite a clever line. I can't work on players' hearts. I'm not a cardiologist. It's quick. It's a good quip. I quite like it. Just maybe quite poor timing. I mean, their defending is absolutely chronic. And and kind of as you've alluded to, I was thinking the question then is how do you apportion the blame there? You know, Pearson's quite keen to project it onto individual players. I think the suggestion is that Zach Viner in particular is one that he's not particularly happy with. Um, But again, kind of what you've suggested, there are plenty of teams showing an ability to defend perfectly well in the championship with, on paper, I would say a similar quality of personnel in defensive areas right so I mean it's easy to do this and pick at teams performing much better defensively but would this same bunch of defenders be defending as poorly under Neil Critchley or Carlos Corbran dare I say it, who I never thought was a brilliant defensive coach but this season maybe there's suggestions or or some evidence that he is even Gary Rowett Nathan Jones these guys they're all managing teams in the, the mid-table or the bottom half of the table, they're all getting way more out of their defensive structure. And I think we've probably covered enough football in the EFL to know that defensive records is a lot down to the coach and how they set their team up and how they drill their team on the on the training ground. So it's an interesting one. It's an interesting also,
1: one. Also, just quickly, the, of the, you know, talking of heart and the intangibles and the mentality stuff, I mean, Thomas Callas and Tim Close have both been promoted from the Championship, haven't they? Eh? As far as I know, they have, yes. So... I mean, that's your back three right there. They were fu- the they heart. were
0: fully intangible when they were promoted from this level.
1: I I don't think they, they were they were tangible. Uh, I I don't think you can doubt the heart of of Alex Scott and Hanno Masengo, Weiman and Martin both played in in Championship playoff campaigns. Uh, you know, it's there's enough experience in there. It's just uh, you know let's not dwell on it because it's just something he said. But if this Bristol City side, um, they're not uncoachable. Let's be clear about that.
0: Birmingham 3, Luton nil means that the two fixtures between these two sides this season have seen Birmingham win 8-0 on aggregate, 5-0 at Cannaweth Road, 3-0 here. Luton haven't lost to anyone else, George, by more than two goals. They've lost to, to Blues twice by three goals and five goals. And I think Birmingham pretty happy to be a, a huge bogey in the nose of Luton Town because <laughs> after, after one win in 11 and no clean sheet in that time as well, that, that 3-0
1: victory more than welcome. Uh, yeah, massive win. Um, I always wonder what it must be like to um, have a huge protest about the goings on at a, at a club. And I'm not for a second saying that this changes anything at Birmingham, but it must be quite weird to be kind of protesting, protesting, and then limbs in the home end when you when you go three nil up, um, and all three goals you know scored by signings made um, by you know the sporting director. Um, Craig Gardner and and under Lee Bowie's management which has got to be a positive obviously that you know the fact that two of them are loan signings means that it doesn't really have any impact long term um, but Bakuna certainly is, is making a mark early on in his days at, at Birmingham and a bit of um, kind of novel recruitment I guess by bringing in a guy from, from Rangers not necessarily a market that is over overshopped the Scottish League I uh, the Scottish Premier Premiership in the um, in the Championship but he's he stepped in very well with a lovely finish and they you know they looked better I mean I was surprised to see how poor Luton were in the game I thought we'd, we'd started to see a level of consistency from Luton uh, over the past few weeks after being fairly disappointed by their early season form and um, But, you know, Birmingham were the better side here and were good value for their win. Um, And certainly for Lee Bowyer, it makes his job a lot easier. Um, They will be hoping, I don't think it will be the case, but the powers that be at Birmingham will be hoping that it's a case of start winning games of football on the pitch and the fans may start taking their foot off the gas when it comes to the protests. I think they're pretty naive if they think that Um, this is more about Long-term strategy and, and communication lines and other things, rather than just three points on the day. Um, but certainly, this is a, a a big win for them. I, I don't think there was a, ever any massive danger of Birmingham being sucked into a relegation fight, given how poor the, the the bottom sides are. But but you know, wins like this certainly give them a bit of a uh, bit of breathing room.
0: Yeah, Bakuna and Onel Hernandez and Lyle Taylor have been amazing, haven't they? I think Bakuna and Hernandez immediately became Birmingham's best technical players, or at least until until Chong comes back from injury, which I, I hope will be soon. And then Lyle Taylor is is kind of peak Lyle Taylor at the moment, which is really pleasing to see because there have been times, you know, since we've covered the leagues, we've seen him look imperious as a striker, um, generally at League One level. And we've seen him at times look quite cumbersome as a championship striker, albeit when he hasn't ever really been first choice and quite often just getting little snippets off the bench where it's hard to build rhythm. But you know, the confidence with which he finishes, with which he carries himself, is is a hell of a, an attribute for a striker. And there was just basically no doubt that he would finish that chance where, when he went one-on-one, one, which was impressive. Some of the old guard performing well as well here. Um, Gary Gardner in midfield getting a lot of plaudits. Maxime Collin at the back as well. At Middlesbrough 4, Derby 1, off the field. On Friday, uh, an accord was found between the clubs, between uh, Steve Gibson and Mel Morris, which means that any legal obstacle that was kind of getting in the way of, of progression in terms of selling Derby County and avoiding their liquidation has, has kind of been removed, which is something to be celebrated. We don't know the details of the deal. Derby, who apparently still have several interested parties to buy the club, as per the administrators, um, they seem confident that things will start moving in the next, I think they said week or 10 days. So hopefully next Monday we'll have an even more upbeat update on the pitch one player in particular to continue to get very excited about. George, I know you saw Isaiah Jones live in the flesh in midweek and he produced an assist that isn't an assist because it was an own goal and you don't get an assist for an own goal but was sensational wing play and then he basically did the same thing three times here. Again, two two legal assists and one own goal assist.
1: Yeah, just, just lack the uh, the nutmeg, the Buchanan assist. Um, he He's remarkable, isn't he? Um, it's It's pretty rare that we get Guys, um, going from relatively unknown to, you know, I think we now have to say that he's one of the best players in the division. Um, you know, the, I get quite tired of the, you basically can't seem to mention Isaiah Jones on um, on social media without Borough fans pointing out that he's better than Jed Spence, uh, which is a bit tiresome. They're both very good I, and I can absolutely understand why <laughs> Borough fans are keen to to point out that they're not missing um their out on loan right back because they have a guy who let's face it is, is consistently um more of a threat to opposition sides than spencer's he, he you know he creates more he's involved in more in more goals themselves uh, as good as Spence has been you cannot deny that isaiah jones um looks at the moment to be probably the more rounded player and, and the one who's impacting games more often because not only does he have um you know, they they both share a a serious turn of pace, but it's Jones's ability to get to the byline and stand a player up and go past them, and then having the presence of mind to find it, to find well either a teammate or an own goal um, that is incredibly valuable. Um, he is he, he's got so many facets to his attacking ability, and unlike Spence, who we saw you know come into the first team at Middlesbrough about two and a half years ago, this is a guy who only a couple of months ago wasn't seen as being a right-back, let alone a a player who is going to be starting games for Middlesbrough. His ascent has been incredibly quick and that in itself, given that he came from non-league as well, um, from Mitchum, if he continues at this kind of trajectory, we're talking about a guy who could be absolutely anything in a couple of years. Um, It's amazing to see what he's doing. He's clearly thriving under the creative freedom that is afforded to him by playing in a Chris Wilder side. And at the moment there, there, there isn't really a more dangerous creative player creative wide player in, in the whole league
0: well it's funny you say that because only Morgan Gibbs-White in reduced minutes because he's had injuries and Chris Willick. Have a better expected assist per ninety number per uh, opta analyst. So you're you're pretty spot on, basically. Mm. Um, it's funny you mentioned the the constant need to bring up Jed Spence uh, online when you mentioned Isaiah Jones. Then just then spoke about Jed Spence quite a lot while talking about Isaiah Jones. So oh, I,
1: was, I, was, I was trying to. You can understand oh, why I, the situation I, means it's it's hard to separate it.
0: it. But what I also like is it's not it, that's not the only thing that might crop up if you mention Isaiah Jones on on Twitter. There's also uh, I think it's time. That I bring up, how much I hate the current uh, craze of anytime you mention any player. This is not Middlesbrough specific whatsoever, but it does happen with Jones. Anytime you mention any player, Shh. what? Who? Nah. nah, I think you got the wrong guy. Nah, I don't need to come. No, he's rubbish, mate. You know? Oh no, 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 no. You're thinking of Lee Peltier. Yeah, that's who you should be. That's who you should be talking about on your podcast. Don't stop tweeting about it. But also, tweet, also he's the best right-wing right, back in the league. He's so much better than Jed Spence. And no one talks about it. But stop tweeting about it. Because what they wouldn't want, George, is for anyone who works in recruitment for another club to find out about him.
1: I was going to say, did you not realise that the Premier League scouting is now just following your Twitter? That's it. I'd
0: I'd suspected it for a so, while.
1: Don't be so entitled.
0: Crystal Palace's recruitment, in particular, had <laughs> raised my eyebrows over the last few months. You
1: never rated Will Hughes. What are you talking about? <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, I always just picture because, as I say, like we're in a position where we get a lot of tweets from a lot of fan bases. So I guess we're probably more uh, we're more open to seeing trends across across seventy two teams than. Maybe a set of fans who mostly just follow their own team and tweet about their mm. own team, um, but it is incredibly tiring. I should shout out the Stoke fans who I think started this, but that was about two years ago and it was relatively funny then when we used to talk about Tyrese Campbell. And there were a couple of them that every time would be like, uh, "No, it's it's actually spelled Sam Vokes, and he's um, yeah, he is excellent though. You should you should look at him." And I was like, "Yeah, okay, here we go, cool, cool." But yeah, I always just picture people type slapping away at their keyboard just like really really excited
1: to type this one out well man now now when you mention Tyrese Campbell it's Charlton fans who are going there's an academy grad he's meant to be very good called Tyrese Campbell at Charlton it's okay is there it's okay the look of confusion on your face there was was, was marvelous
0: I've always been more of a Daniel Carnu fan if we're talking Charlton yeah, academy graduates well, he's serious
1: but... yeah but that he's like the one everyone knows Campbell's the actual talent it's one of those I think you're going to get a few
0: follows from some Premier League recruitment analysts coming up because it sounds like you're the guy to follow. Um, We should say strong win for for Borough, strong performance. Derby struggling a bit away from home, basically can't score enough. And their their incredible defensive record at home does not exist to the same extent away from home. Uh, But Borough just pretty automatic at the moment, performance level wise. I think off the top of my head, I can only really think of the game against Blackburn where they were really under par. And that's pretty exciting because the sample size is growing um, and, and the performances remain the same. Wilder, in, I think in quite classic fashion, has basically his his nine now from goalkeeper up to the top of the pitch. A very settled nine players um, who are massively in rhythm. And then, you know, he's flipping his strikers. He's got four or five. He's quite sweet. He always mentions Josh Coburn as being their, another striker option they have but I don't really get the feeling he has much interest in Doesn't actually claim. using him um because of course he yeah. brought in Balogun and Connolly uh in January and and you know they both came in this week despite I think the strikers playing quite well at Loftus Road what more and spur are and they Balogun and Connolly had their best performances so far probably so um so far so Chris Wilder um I I honestly think he's one of the best managers in the country one of the best English managers yeah. in the world and I and and he manages a yeah. team in the championship and when a, cha- a team in the championship has one of the best managers in the country, in the world, dare I say it? I think they're going to do quite well. So it's pretty exciting stuff. Um,
1: I mean, I thought I was the Chris Wilder lover, but you've just said that Chris Wilder's one of the best managers in the world, which I'm excited about. That's great.
0: Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm pretty confident in that assertion based on basically every bit of evidence I have over the last consistent ten over-performance. years. But yeah.
1: yet some people will point to three months last season and be like, "Can't we true. Yeah.
0: Well, we're going to talk about some more managers later on in this podcast. And i got some thoughts on similar themes in terms of uh, just zooming in on a couple of months of someone's career and deciding it makes them bad. Um, Blackpool 1, Bournemouth 2. George, from the lows of defeat to Boreham Wood to back-to-back wins. I feel like last Monday we were a bit, a bit curious as to where, you know, Bournemouth's performance level and, and where it would sort of shake out and where it would take them. All of a sudden... B2B wins and and a five-point cushion back to third. Uh, The caveat being that Blackburn played tonight against West Brom.
1: Yeah, it's a big week for Bournemouth. I think Scott Parker is one of the best managers in the world. And No, I'm joking. Uh, I think, um, yeah, it's a big week for them because off the back of the Bournemouth result and and the way the the table looked after that. Um, Clearly, the, the home game against Birmingham... Um, it's a game that I've expected to win, but that's not always the easiest when you're under a bit of pressure, but they've they've kind of rallied and performed really well um, off the back of that. You know, the, the game against Blackpool was never going to be particularly um, comfortable the way that Blackpool play. Uh, it's never going to be easy for any side. Um, Neil Critchie deserves immense credit for that um, in Josh Bowler. Blackpool have got one of the inform attacking players in the in the league as well, and he showed his class again with the first goal. Uh, but Bournemouth found a way to win, and you know we've spoken a lot about um, their transfer dealings in January. Uh, maybe less positive about it than, well, about what it means and about the. The, the strategy itself rather than the players themselves. Uh, but two players here who performed incredibly well were well, Todd Cantwell, who was very, very lively midfield, and uh, Siriki Dembele, who, who got the, the dream debut goal in the 95th minute to win the game, um, which was good to see. Uh, Travers, who I, I mean, I mentioned that I felt sorry for Travers, that he was going to be replaced by Woodman. He made some crucial saves in the game uh, and, and looks have sort of held on to that, that jersey for the time being, uh, especially with um Woodburn putting in a pretty ropey performance against Borinwood. Um if he continues this way, I, I don't think Woodburn's gonna get much of a look in. So all in all, you know, a, a, a it was never going to be cozy. It was never going to be comfortable. They got the win in dramatic fashion on a day where QPR went to a team in they that expect to beat and, and got beaten themselves. And West sorry and um Blackburn have it all to do tonight, really. Um they they go to uh, a Hawthorns that's gonna be a very different place to go. With Steve Bruce's first game, I think given the unpopularity of um, Valerian Ishmael, we can be pretty sure that Bruce is going to get an overwhelmingly positive welcome uh, as they try. You know, the fans will be keen to try and do whatever they can to galvanise their season up against a side who Baggy's fans will consider as being rivals for, for promotion. Um, so uh, Bournemouth look to be massively in the box seat now. Um, it feels like. There are very few teams. I mean, it basically feels like there are no teams in my book who can catch Bournemouth unless Bournemouth turn into a mid-table team between now and the end of the season.
0: I, I must admit to have had to have uh, having had a moment of of some emotion after considering Dembélé and him scoring the winning goal here for a team that's in the automatic promotion place in the Championship because uh, it, basically since we've been doing the pod, he sort of popped up on our radar. I think it was 2017. Um, he he'd been at the Nike Academy. Uh, he didn't have a, a professional club and then Grimsby took him in. I've never been quite sure of of the circumstances of that, whether it was just a trial and they, they saw something they liked. But uh, almost immediately he was kind of on our radar as someone who had clearly very rare skill on the ball um, and didn't always find it easy in League Two. It wasn't like he absolutely tore it up and, and you know s- um, filled up the stats in terms of goals and assists and stuff. Um, but only one season at Grimsby before... Perhaps unsurprisingly, Peterborough were the ones who, who were quite keen to take a punt, if that's what you can call it, which obviously we didn't think it was. And, and um, now he finds himself uh, one more up, up in the food chain. And it's been, yeah, it's been a really cool journey to follow. That's for sure. It's actually, I was thinking uh, the 21 under 21 idea that I had was initially going to be called 20 under 20 merely because <laughs> we're called not the top 20. And I thought NTT 20s 20 under 20 sounded quite cool uh, and then realized that actually you're really limiting yourself if it's just if it's under-20s. But Dembele was on my initial list back in probably three and a half, four years ago. Mm. So there you go. Um, and I just want to say that, well, I just want to praise Neil Critchley again. I know we do it a lot. I'd like to do so here again, even in defeat. Uh, I think, again, we saw a genuinely excellent game plan, an excellent performance against this quote-unquote all-stars team. Um, they've had six games against the current top four They've only lost two, uh, Blackpool. And if you look at the other teams in the bottom half of the table, no one comes close to, to even laying a glove, really, on on, the, on those top four teams, particularly Fulham and um, Bournemouth, apart from Derby, who have got a pretty good record as well against the top teams. And that counts a lot for my sort of manager ratings, Like your ability to go up against teams with so much greater resources than you... Um, and and frustrate them, but also offer a threat. It's not just about low blocks sitting in, hoping for the best, mm. kind of closing your eyes and and you know dreaming of home and hoping for the best. It's it's more than that. And you know, on another day, I think they hit the bar, didn't they? Would have gone two nil up. Interesting. um But I, yeah, I was surprised to see that Bournemouth's gap was that big, and then less surprised to see a current odds. Uh, of them making the top two implying a 78% probability. I think there'll be some people who probably listened last week and thought Bournemouth are vulnerable and now listening this week (laughs) and we're saying it's very, very likely they'll come to. Lots can change. What a difference a week makes. Uh, How about the league leaders? Fulham, they went to Hull and and won 1-0, George. Anything notable?
1: (sighs) I guess maybe just that Fulham won when when not really being at their best. It's felt like quite often this season Fulham have either blitz teams or when they've um, regressed a little bit in terms of their performance level. Um, they um, they don't win effectively. Mitro is pretty quiet, but had that one moment of quality. Uh, Necker Williams put in a uh, a Trent-esque ball, let's say for for Mitro's header, which was superb. I had the pleasure of listening to BBC Radio Humberside after the game because I was. Um, because I was on the way back from Grimsby Town against Aldershot. Ah. And Did Gr- Grimsby, bit... have,
0: have they got the next Siriki Dembele? Could you tell us about that?
1: Um, they have a player in John McAtee, who is pretty lively, um, kind of has a bit of the Dion Charleses about him, um, in terms of being very direct, running around a lot, and having a bit of quality as well. And then a player called Arjun, uh Reiki, who is on loan from um, Aston Villa, who is a tall, rangy centre midfielder who looks pretty good at getting the ball back when they lose it and has some pretty tidy passing as well. He controlled the game in midfield, so they'd be the two I'd take out of it. Um, But I digress. Yeah, I mean, with Hull, I was kind of disappointed to hear a few Hull fans being like, why has he played Marcus Force? He looks rubbish, Um, which is disappointing. It, It did kind of sound like the way that I mean, uh, this is a a few fans texting into a a, a local radio station after a game. So, you know, we can't take it too seriously, but they were like, he doesn't, didn't win any headers. He didn't hold the ball up at all. Well, if you're asking... Uh, Marcus Force to do the job of Tommy Eves when you have got Tommy Eves sitting on the bench. I, I do disagree. I, I, sorry, I do agree that that's fairly foolish because Force isn't a player you should be looking to hit. Force is a player that we, you should be trying to get into goal scoring areas, um, but, don't but it think, doesn't get much.
0: Doesn't it doesn't. It is a bit of a weird selection, then, isn't it, from Arveladze? Like it's not exactly forces for courses, is it? Because mm. you no. he's no. not.
1: But then I hope Arveladze. I mean, what's Hull's next game? Um, Did he have a lot of shotter, Marcus? I mean, they're away at Sheffield United next, which doesn't make it much easier. But I hope that Arvaladze gets back on the force um, and doesn't doesn't give up.
0: Full God. force, actually. That was Fulham's hashtag for a while when they went up. So we've come full circle there. Hashtag full force, one nil, Metro equaling Tony's record from last season already, and uh, pretty sensationally as well. Like, how does he? head it so much better than everyone else
1: it's just good it's just good at heading mate
0: why yeah but that's what i'm saying how can he be how can he be so far better at heading than anyone else like how can his headers from really like it was a great cross don't get me wrong but the point of impact there that is i mean if you if you took the most advanced xg model that knows everything there is to know about heading that is an incredibly low probability chance he's like it's kind of behind him it's kind of, it's got a bit of pace on it, but it's, it's not, it's not probably onto the best part of his head, technically, and he just guides it in off the post, full stretch dive mm. from the keeper, nowhere near it. It's unbelievable, and I think it's nine headers he scored this season, and that, Oh, it's unbelievable. Uh, Reading two, Coventry three, Coventry getting something they hadn't got recently, which was a win without deserving it. Probably the reverse of what they've had recently, where they haven't been winning, and some people think that they. Did deserve it based on their performances. Uh, sideways, Sammy, who's the Cov the City guru on Twitter, said they just looked very tired and never really in control. And They did have a cup game against Saints the weekend before and then a game in midweek as well. So a bit of fatigue probably uh, not too surprising, but th- they got the job done particularly through set pieces and then Ian Matson with the winning goal. Now Matson, obviously a Chelsea loany. It's funny to hear you mention Aston Villa there with a the loany at Grimsby because it feels like they are now the team basically them and Brighton are, have almost become the sort of EFL and National League lone farmers, uh, maybe a bit more. So, I mean, Chelsea's still very much on the radar there, but those guys kind of copying, imitating, dare I say it, and doing it pretty well. And some of Villa's Loney's Archer, Davis, many more, Finnaz as well. Um, but Matson alone from Chelsea is an interesting player. He's sort of naturally a left wing back. Led to, uh, that's where he's generally played for Coventry, at, at left wing back in their, in their system. But, Having been out for a bit and then having signed Jake Bidwell in January, since he's come back, uh, he played at the the top of the box. They play this sort of 3-4-2-1, don't they, with the two tens behind the striker. Um, him next to Callum O'Hare at the top of the box. And I kind of like it. He's very, very fast. He's very agile. He looks like he quite enjoys just running in behind from deep, getting beyond Ghiok, um, running onto Callum O'Hare through balls. I uh, quite liked it. And that's that's how he got his goal. Um, he's had a bit of bit of um, experience in the past for the Holland youth teams playing in the centre of the park so it's not completely alien to him and last season for Charlton I remember a few games where he played right wing as well so uh, a versatile player maybe someone who you know w- it'd be interesting to track we always kind of think we know a player's natural position but maybe at such a young age you know it is a bit more fluid maybe Matson will end up playing somewhere very different to left-wing back. He certainly looks like he enjoys attacking more than defending. So uh, I think it works pretty well. It's another example of, of Mark Robbins, I think, being creative with his squad, using the players that he has at his disposal in, in kind of outside-the-box ways. And I love it. Uh, as for Reading, some kind of good stuff going forward and some terrible defending and more individual errors letting them down. Uh, in particular, Hoylet here uh, with a boneheaded two yellow cards in the space of five minutes at two all. To put them down to 10 men and, and Kov then getting the winner from that point. I mean, in that sense, it was everything from Reading's recent performances in one go. Bad defending, individual errors, bad vibes. Lots of reports, George, last night that Pauno's getting sacked, but no confirmation today. Um, mm. There's there's kind of a lot to unpack here as well, because it was, it was their 150th birthday, which they sort of half celebrated, but then the fans really didn't feel like they'd lent into it enough. This is off the back of... Uh, uh, an open letter from the owner that was entirely unsatisfactory last week as well not in any way sort of calming the 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 ire of the fans who made their, their stance pretty clear with some protests outside the ground on Saturday it's not a happy place right now on a number of levels
1: no it's not um, and they have you know the biggest probably Reading's biggest game Since the playoff final, they lost against Huddersfield uh, coming up midweek this week because they play against the side in Peterborough, who are um, the most likely team, if any, uh, to overtake them into the the, the final um, spot in safety in in the table. And I don't know, it feels to me like given Paunovic's unpopularity within the fan base, maybe making a change ahead of such a, a crucial fixture would be a way to try and arrest the slide um, but instead you're going in with the same group of players and the same manager who have lost the last what is it eight games in a row in all competitions uh, including a defeat against a non-league club in the FA Cup um, conceding just basically almost countless goals you know the goals conceded in their last seven league games are 7-2-2-4-4-2-3 two, two, four, four, two, I mean it's it's just totally Abject. Um, I mean, they come up against the side in Peterborough who who are, who are similarly poor. But even though there is a a big group of posh fans who who want to see the back of Darren Ferguson, um, I don't think the the strength of feeling against either the ownership or the or the manager is as strong as at Reading. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been pretty clear, I think, from where we've been sitting that um, Reading could do better uh, than Pavlović for a long while now. The longer this goes on, the, hardest, the harder it's going to be to recruit anyone. And, and given their recent appointments, um, and looking back at Bowen appointing himself uh, a couple of years ago, it's it's hard to really make a case for them going out and getting the right man in. So it's it's pretty desperate. It's a mess. And Reading owners will be hoping that they strike lucky in midweek up against a side who are similarly poor. Mill will beat Cardiff
0: 2-1 at the first half. here it was very, very poor. Um I think Burke had a, a sort of half chance. He just about got to a ball through before the keeper, but not not enough to really have any sort of angle or any space to get it past the keeper. Other than that, there was next to nothing. And I'm not sure, to be honest, if it wasn't for Murray Wallace's set-piece goal to put Millwall one up, whether we would have seen a goal in this game. I think Millwall Cardiff it's, it's two teams whose strengths and weaknesses and game plans... And, and and styles, when you mix them into a, a the cauldron of a match, they don't mix very well. It's not a tasty potion uh, in terms of sort of open, entertaining games. But thankfully, the goal sort of opened things up a little bit. Cardiff had to had to come out a bit more. And, and it was Millwall who made the most of that. Uh, their subs Savile and Bennett combining to put them 2-0 up before Cardiff pulled one back right at the end. Pleasing for Millwall to get a goal from open play because they've scored the third fewest in the league. Um Terrible defending from Cardiff for that goal, though. So, again, it's definitely something we will need to continue to work on. Uh, the jury is massively still out on them as an attacking threat. And and if they can't improve on that front, and I think maybe they can, Jed Wallace back from injury now and, and speculation behind him for another few months at least should improve that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, from a Cardiff point of view, three wins in a row to get 12 points clear of the zone uh, before this game, so I'm, I'm not really too down on them despite defeat here, but I'm certainly not getting carried away, shall we say, about Millwall's win either. Uh, they've got QPR at home midweek and then Blackburn away, so maybe next Monday if we talk about Millwall again, if they've picked up, you know, if they've beaten even one of those teams, I'll be pretty impressed, uh, particularly if they can do so while causing some problems from open play. There, I've laid down the gauntlet. Um, and why don't you take us home with Peterborough 0, Preston 1 and another Aston Villa lone catching the eye.
1: Yeah, Cameron Archer again. Another brilliant finish. He looks like such a, an impressive uh, bit of business from, from Ryan Lowe. Um, Peterborough had probably the better chances of the game, can we say? Possibly. like There was definitely much more in Peterborough's performance to be optimistic about than we've seen um, for a long time. Um, just having a look at the the XG now uh, which came in at 1.7 0.48 so you know we can definitely put this down as a moment of quality from a quality player winning the game for Preston when actually the balance of play probably was in favour of the home side um, which you know coming into this this massive midweek game that I just spoke about um, it feels like both Posh and, and Reading have been beaten despite putting in a better home performance last time uh, I'd probably have more faith in Peterborough being able to replicate that um, or in midweek rather than um, rather than Reading, although I guess you can also argue that Reading certainly have a an advantage in terms of the quality of player they've got, you know, the likes of Hoyler and, and Joao and other players that, that they can, um, you know, swift. I mean, all these guys are, are basically better than anything posh have got. So um, I'm sure Peterborough are pretty, pretty happy that they're going to be coming up against Pauno up, up in midweek, but here they'll feel frustrated that they weren't able to get the, the three points. But for Preston... Um, you know, there's some talk up amongst their fans of of possibly muscling their way into the playoff picture i you know i don't think it's going to happen personally um i think they will um you know, it's been a, a brilliant run and it's great to see Ryan Lowe doing so well he's he's spoken himself in the press talking about how for the way that he wants to play uh, you know he likes to play with with attacking wingbacks as we saw at Argyle um, the players that he has at his disposal at, at um, Preston in, you know, he's had to move pots out there Erlo Cunningham on the left hand side it's not really conducive to the way that he wants to play and he doesn't really feel like he'll get Preston playing at the level that he wants until he gets in those attacking minded natural wingbacks um, and as I say the, you know, this was a win but it wasn't necessarily the most convincing um, but they do have Reading at home next uh, which is winnable but then difficult games against Forest and uh, Coventry, Bournemouth, I think is probably where those ambitious playoff hopes and dreams may um, may start to, to fade away.
0: Forest 2, Stoke uh included, I mean, possibly, definitely one of my top 10 favourite moments of the season. Um, uh, if not my top five, I'm thinking off the top of my head of that uh, of that really wet goal that Plymouth scored as, as being kind of hard to beat. And I'm sure there's been a couple of others, but Bryce Sambas, or Brees Sambas, dismissal genuinely one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen live like you watch so much on a Saturday at Quest you've got all the championship games going on live I've normally got about four five six League One League Two feeds as well coming in so I mean it's an absolute feast of football a kaleidoscope of football it's great fun it's terrible for someone like me who's got you know uh, real concentration span issues and nothing diagnosed I should say but um but strongly hinted at by, by my friends and family and um but it does mean that sometimes you see, like, I, I saw Samba catch the ball and then I looked to another screen because generally you're like, okay, Keeper's got it in his hands. I, I'll go see where the goal mouth action is elsewhere. And then, about te- literally like 10 seconds later, someone was like, Stoker got a penalty. And I was like, mm, don't think so. I've just seen Brees pluck one out of the sky. I think, if anything, Forrest will be on the counter now. And then I looked up and off he, off he popped. And then the replay, I've, I honestly don't think I've ever laughed that hard. I know that Forrest fans would be a bit annoyed because why should I be laughing at their goalkeeper getting sent off? But come on. <laughs> Absolute peak, Samba. Uh, and I guess if you celebrate all the other stuff he's done up to this point, uh, and fair play to you, I would too if I was a Forest fan, if you celebrate all the uh, housery, uh, that he has performed over the last few years, then you probably, you know, you, you probably can't complain too much. Um, but but good to see Yates score the equaliser right at the end there, having been left out. I think it's the first time that he's been available this season and he's been left out. Uh, and I was not- I noticed before the game I was going through some team news and I was thinking well, that looks a bit harsh. And then you dig into it a bit deeper, you realised Cooper's Forest team now have twelve starters basically, um, and. That means there's always someone that has to be rotated out. And he is taking a kind of horses-for-courses approach. In midweek, they were away at Blackburn. He went a bit more defensive. Uh, Zinc was was left out. It was just Johnson and Davis uh, up front. But we know that, that Cooper wants to play three up front where possible in this system, particularly at home. So someone had to come out of that midfield, uh, and it was Yates. But he, he came on and made the difference anyway. Stoke played their part in what was an excellent game. Really enjoyable. And it means, George, we have got 10 points between Stoke and... Uh, in I think 12th or 13th and the team in third that's currently Blackburn so we've got a pretty fascinating yeah 13th Stoke 43 points third Rovers 53 points Uh, 11 teams in that gang 10 points between them all of them with strengths and weaknesses and good narratives as well but only four playoff spots up for grabs and maybe an automatic spot but we think maybe not exciting end to the season incoming either way Uh, in League One we're going to get through the games first and then we'll talk Alex, Neil and Sunderland. Start with a big game on Sunday, Sheffield Wednesday nil, Rotherham 2. Uh, Paul Warren kind of did the analysis for us here, George. I thought Sheffield Wednesday were the better side today, he said, and we win 2-0. How we got in at 0-0 at half-time, I don't know. So I just asked them to play with a bit more clarity and belief in the second half. Football's never fair, but we got a good goal off a set piece and some dogged defending. We rode our luck at times and overall, I don't think the best team won, but we're not complaining. Uh, it's one of those where we talk about a game
1: probably feeling pretty positive
0: about the team that lost
1: yeah and that continues a trend at the moment of Sheffield Wednesday playing very well in basically every game they've played for the last five or six um as is the nature of the beast um Sheffield Wednesday fans frustrated with Darren Moore for not getting a win against you know the team down the road despite putting in a good performance I said last week that they were the second best team in the league I think from what we saw on Sunday, um, there's nothing to suggest they aren't. They, they, they went toe to toe with the best team in the league in Rotherham, and did very well. And you know, we're going to talk about Wigan in a sec, but um, the, you know, for Wednesday versus Wigan, for me right now, each sure of venue would have had Wednesday as favourites. Um, but currently, they're in eighth on 52 points. And they've got a worse goal difference than basically every team around them. But if I were to have One big view from now to the end of the season, Um, despite losing 2-0, it'll be that Sheffield Wednesday will finish third or fourth, Um, and feasibly even second if if Wigan really do fall apart.
0: Interesting thing for Wednesday is that they've already played 15 of the 18 games that they need to play against fellow top 10 teams, which is insane. Basically, that is a ridiculous number at this point. They have to go away to MK Dons, to Wickham and to Bolton. Who are top ten teams? But apart from that, they've played. They've played all of the top ten. Well, they've played. They've played six of the other nine top ten teams twice. There you go. That was easy. Um It means that all eight of Wednesday's home games are against teams beneath them. And on, on paper, looking at the Soccer Stats website anyway, in their run in analysis, the easiest run in in League One by miles. So, uh, yeah, fueling the fire that is Wednesday, on their way question mark. Uh, But they didn't win because Rotherham won and Rotherham are on a simply sensational uh, run of form which has seen them open up quite the gap uh, above Wigan. Nine points it is, uh, albeit Wigan have those three games in hand. Rotherham's goal difference plus 16 uh, goals superior to to Wigan. So you'd say that acts as a a point of sorts. Uh, They've won, what is it, six games in a row. Um, I saw them in in midweek beating AFC Wimbledon. And I saw them on the telly on Sunday. And even if there's this sense that they didn't play particularly well, that they weren't as dominant as you might expect a team that's nine points clear, I think that kind of misses the point with Rotherham. I think it, it, it actually misses the fact that they are pretty dominant, not not in this game against Wednesday, who who did have quite a lot of territory. But in general, Rotherham are entirely dominant when it comes to the things that matter in football. That's territory, that's entries into the opposition box, that could be shots. That could be shots faced. Uh, it could be, you know, opportunities given up. They are so so good. Um, and you know, these are mainly thoughts after the game against Wimbledon, rather than after the game against Wednesday. But it just struck me how how easily they work the ball into wide areas um, into Ogbené and into Ferguson who stretch the pitch so much they don't really look to penetrate through the middle you know they have good ball playing central midfield players in Barlaser and Wiles and Rathbone or, or Lindsay but they really don't look to do much through the middle their first thought is to build out wide and it's pretty hard to to defend against width like you can't you can't go wider than the width of the pitch so there's always going to be An option out there and they're so good at getting the ball into wide areas and then as we've discussed many times you know it's not just enough to sling a load of crosses into the box you have to do so with you know with proper intent with a proper process and they do that as well Um, obviously even when they're not looking their best in open play with the amount of throw-ins that they generate and corners that they generate from that wide play it's not a coincidence that they put so many balls into the box that's by design you retain that set piece throughout even if you're not that fluid uh, from open play and that's helped them win a lot of games this season where maybe they haven't been amazing um, in open play but without the ball as well you know they've got the best defensive record in the EFL they haven't conceded a goal George away from home in the first half of a game full stop for the whole season I mean that's a re- that's an insane record. 16 away games. They haven't conceded a goal in the first half of away games. They they're so strong in the tackle in their duels. They're so aggressive. They're so confident. They're so well drilled. It just feels like it feels like they, they so rarely get caught out like a lot of defenses do. And that's in possession as well. You know it it always feels like again they're not the most expansive team and they're not even the most ambitious team in terms of always trying to to push it into the area straight away. They can be quite patient with the ball in terms of their build up at the back and in midfield. But it always feels like they have a passing option. And I think that's where the the shape and the structure and how well drilled they are really comes into effect. It felt against Wimbledon like they had one more player on the pitch because they always had an option. When someone was closed down and you thought, oh, Let's hope he's got something on. He always did. It wasn't necessarily a forward pass into a dangerous area, but they just never seemed troubled. They never seemed likely to lose the ball in a, in a dangerous area. They always had someone to receive the pass and, and that leads to it seeming like they have an extra player at times. Uh, and it makes a big difference. It means you don't really get caught out on the ball. It means you don't get in trouble in transition uh, after mistakes in possession, which almost every other team does. So really impressive stuff. Just my thoughts on Rotherham having watched them in the flesh and then another full 90 on the telly as well on Sunday. Uh, But it's Wigan, their sort of main challenges at the moment. Um, Three without a win before the weekend. I think the fans are getting a little bit antsy. Rotherham's own form obviously kind of multiplies that. But a win from behind against Charlton, George, and, and maybe a feeling that they're kind of back on track. This was the sort of win we've seen quite a
1: few times this season. Yeah, it was another classic Wigan um, living on the edge, one goal margin win. Um, Elliot Lee put Charlton ahead. And then Alex Gilby had a shot off the bar, which would have put them too clear. Um, and then in the second half, you know, again, there wasn't much between the two sides. Charlton seemed to be a side at the moment who look very, very um, competent defensively. But every time the opposition um, fashions a decent chance, it goes in. I thought McGillivray um should have done much better for the for the winner um he he kind of half comes for it and then he's stuck in no man's land and it's such an easy finish uh, and that except for the the Bolton game where he was blameless for the goals um it's a running theme at the moment i think mcgillivray's more than most keepers in League One or in most of the EFL has been at fault fairly often at the moment and is letting Charlton down at times, uh, which is a shame because he's a he's a you know he's certainly a goalkeeper who has been consistently good at times this season uh, and and previously as well for Pompey. I think he's a better shot stopper than he is at commanding his area, which seems to be a massive weakness. Um, but for Wigan, you know this is classic them. Uh, the reason why I kind of talk about Sheffield Wednesday as being the second best team in the in the league and not the third is because. I still don't think we're going to play very well at the moment and and for once normally when this is the case when we say this their fans rise up uh, to question what you're talking about um I'm sure they would question me saying that Sheffield Wednesday are a better team than them but certainly in terms of their current form at the moment they know that they're not playing particularly well they know they're not putting in performances of a similar level to the beginning of the season but it's not mat- well it, it mattered for the last couple of games and that little dip was coming um but this was more of them not being at their best living a little bit dangerously defensively but being clinical in front of goal and getting the win and um the way the league is set up at the moment with them having four games in hand on the majority of the team is beneath them um it's it's just a case of just picking up these points consistently because they didn't want to be stuck in a situation which could have happened if they'd lost this one uh, you know if they'd lost here they'd have been stuck they'd have been down in third playing catch up in terms of games and as soon as that happens then Um, It's a bit trickier, but they're still, you know, if if they can pick up even six points from those four games in hand, then they are well clear of the pack.
0: Last 13 games in League One, we're going to have won eight of 13, which is fabulous form, fabulous points picking up. Uh, All eight of their wins have been by a single goal, which is, again, pretty unusual Mm. um, and kind of speaks to what you're saying there. It's it's an interesting situation at the moment. Uh, What about Oxford United? Trying to analyse Oxford games is very difficult. Uh, This was... The third straight game that finished 3-2, a league game at the Kassam Stadium. The first time that Oxford hadn't won 3-2, losing to informed Bolton Wanderers. Carl Robinson just continuing to adopt the the full vibes tactical approach. And as a neutral, <laughs> I for one love it.
1: Well, definitely in the first half, I felt like the second half um, fizzled a bit as a game. You know, the first half was very end-to-end, uh, four goals scored, two Unbelievably good strikes from Billy Bowden. Uh, one, one a set piece, a free kick. The other one, an open play. Um, I think the first one may have been wind assisted with that um, prevailing wind through the defence end. Um, but and the, in the uh, and for Bolton, I thought Marlon Fossey's goal was pure quality—the touch and the finish—and uh, assist for him on the day. And it, and it felt like this was a game where it was going to unravel into into mayhem. Uh, Oxford fans don't like it very much when you say this, but. I thought Jack Stevens should have done better with the first again. Um he is a goalkeeper with a big reputation. He's fairly young. You know, he's not quite as young as as people may think given his um you know he's 24 years old. But I just when you've got a keeper who is very good, normally over the course of the season you can point to games where without your keeper you would have dropped points and with Stevens at the moment it feels to me like there are quite a lot of Goals that go in where you can question whether or not he could have done better. And um, if I was in charge of, of going on at Oxford, I'd probably look to cash in on Stevens in the summer and bring in um uh, someone else to challenge Simon Eastwood for that for that jersey. Quite, Quite not alarming
0: charge, so. uh, underlying numbers on the Opta Analyst site, which I've only just noticed. Um yeah, Jack Stevens. Jack Stevens' goals prevented this season. Uh only Alex Cairns of Fleetwood in terms of first choice goalkeepers has a worse record. Per Opta analyst, 16 expected goals on target conceded, uh, but 24 real goals conceded. Uh, again, there's more. There's more to goalkeeping that shouldn't just be used in isolation, but as a, a shot-stopping metric, it's probably the best that we've got. And having, yeah, having conceded eight goals more than what Opta would consider the average goalkeeper to have conceded from those shots is is obviously not great. Uh, but Bolton, well, it just they march on, don't they? Six wins in seven. Uh, they only had six shots in this game, but three high-quality finishes. Fossey, as you mentioned, the star man with a goal and an assist. They got Burton away in midweek. They got Wimbledon on the weekend. And and because we've seen them do this before last season in League 2, like I'm I'm kind of conflicted. I'm obviously excited because I feel like I was a little bit ahead on the sort of Bolton are going to be really good thing, and that makes me feel warm inside because it's nice to feel correct. Then also there's the fact that it's easy to say, well, they won 16 of their last 22 games last season. So we know they can do this. And and then the next step is to, to go, well, does that definitely mean they're going to do it again? Not necessarily. But six and seven is not a bad start. Um, and they'll be just full of confidence. And I've, I've said it a few times. One of the big reasons why I was I was kind of up for this was that they made six additions probably in, in January, maybe seven. And every single one of them uh, either strengthened their first team or gave them a really nice option off the bench. So, for example, Kieran Sadlier and Carl Dempsey are on the bench on Saturday. Like Those as options to come off the bench in the 10 role or in the centre midfield role, really strong. So much stronger than they had before. So, uh, that was kind of a big part of it and and it's great to see this uh, form that they've gathered. Argyle are, are in good form as well. Three wins in a row. They beat Shrews uh, on the weekend. The big theme of, of the weekend across a lot of uh, games because of the weather was not a pretty game, horrendous conditions, but ground out a win that's the main thing And I think this one definitely fit that bill a deserved win for sure but it still needed another moment of quality from the edge of the box from Connor Grant uh, the left wing back for Argyle who when the ball's out wide out on the right side uh, I really like this about him and it's a bit different where a lot of wing backs just make the standard run to the back post every time and that can be very dangerous you know they're often the free man at the back stick and you see a lot of wing backs scoring in those positions like Fossey against um, Oxford but Grant comes inside and, and just positions himself at the edge of the box because his great skill is not necessarily an aerial threat at the back stick. His threat is unbelievable finishing from the edge. Uh, we saw that here with a brilliant strike. Six goals from left wing back, four assists as well. Definitely one of the most sort of underrated players and performers, I think, in League One this season. And it means that Argyle remain in and around the playoff places, you know, amongst the so-called big boys of League One. I, I, I do... I don't want to say they're definitely making the top six. I do want to say I think there will be people guilty of, of going like, oh, Ryan Lowe's left them. And that means probably that they'll just quietly slide down the table. You know, they did have a run of 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 poor form where they were struggling to pick up wins, but it's three in a row now. Like, they're still performing pretty well. Maybe not at the absolute levels that they were at the start of the season, but certainly at a good enough level to be part of the conversation. And I think that... Needs to be mentioned. As for Shrews, I think now getting a bit antsy. Uh, only four points above the relegation zone. They've only scored three goals in nine games in the league. A uh, Huge game at home to Morecambe this weekend. Uh, how about Portsmouth for Donny Nil or Accrington for Crew One? Which of those ones do you like the look of?
1: Yeah, Pompey for Donny Nil. <clears throat> uh, Pompey running riot for the first time in a while. I think Pompey fans have been uh, waiting for the handbrake to be led off under Danny Cowley. Uh, for a while, and it certainly was the case here. Um, they were very good on the day. You know, They came up against a side in Doncaster, who we know are one of the weakest, if not the weakest teams in the division, um, and Pompey would expect to do this, but it doesn't always work that easily. You just have to ask Sunderland fans who turned up to the Stadium of Light, hoping they were going to do this to Doncaster last weekend and ended up leaving pointless. Um, yeah, some, I thought Marcus Harness playing in a proper wide right role was really impressive um Rico Hackett Fairchild as well on the left George Hurst with um a finish that was you know it felt like he was trying to dig the ball over the keeper and somehow kind of managed to squirm it through Mitchell's arms uh, which I don't know if it was necessarily deliberate but it was just you know that good performances throughout the side Edna O'Brien scoring with his first touch for Pompey as well um Hayden Carter with one of the naughtiest nutmegs you're ever going to see um <laughs> as well it was just you know Pompey have had some up and down days this season but this was certainly uh, a good day and off the back of the 2-1 win at home to Burton. Um, again, they're another side who will just feel like if they can get a run of wins together, um, could they spoil the party? You know, they're one point behind Bolton, having played a game fewer. So if we're putting Bolton in the mix, then we have to put Pompey in there too. It's that time of the year, mate. It's that time of the year when I start saying, if we're, if we're saying they're involved, then they've also got to be involved because mathematically, it's all the same. It's so tiring when you start doing that. I get so tired. Yeah. but How's your head?
0: I often I can't argue. Uh, the Accrington crew game has sort of two clear narratives. Uh, one of them is about Sean McConville of Accrington Stanley, uh, who got three assists and a goal here, every single one of them from set-piece situations. Um, three crosses headed home and one free kick direct into the top corner. Um, he's just the most sensational. Well, no, he's he is one of the key players players in in the EFL's rich tapestry, I'd say. Like, as part of this Accrington team who have been an incredible story for a long time now. Um, and him as as John Coleman's, like, favourite son. Uh, him as a player who... It, it's, it's definitely going to sound damning about his ability. It's, like, it's quite difficult to imagine Sean McConville starting as many games for another League One team. Partly because I think the history and the relationship to the club and the relationship to the manager... Is what probably pushes him up to this performance level, uh, and and that's tough to recreate elsewhere. I might be very wrong. He he might thrive elsewhere, but I I get the feeling this is literally just the perfect the perfect sort of combination, the perfect place, the perfect player, um, and it means he's now got twelve assists in League One this season. Uh, it's his third season in double figures for Accrington. In sixteen seventeen, he got five goals, and nineteen assists. In seventeen eighteen, he got twelve goals and fourteen assists. Uh, he's had two other seasons where he got nine but in those seasons he got 15 goals and 13 goals so he's either in double figures for goals or double figures for assists normally pretty close to both um, a transfer marked have him with 63 goals and 84 assists in 373 Accrington games it's absolutely unbelievable imagine how much you'd love him if you're an Aki fan uh, and then the, the other narrative is a, is a sort of slightly sadder one and that's Dave Artell under an awful lot of pressure and it really turned in the away end uh, after losing 4-1 against Argyle having been one and up in midweek and then 4-1 here at Aki and Dave Artel getting sort of barracked by some fans as he walked off, it's not great for an under fire manager that the tunnel is in that corner next to the away end Um, and you know he has made some pretty strange decisions um, from from my standpoint over the last few weeks and months as Cruz's season has kind of spiraled. He's also done an incredible amount for the club, and and you know I was listening to the the Railwaymen podcast earlier, and they were quite clean, to, keen, quite clean, quite keen to make it clear that that what he's done for the club is you know almost as good as any other manager uh, that they can think of, but that it's it could be time, it could be time. Now I happen to think that there's there's a chance that this could still be turned around with Artel because I've got so much respect for him. But it it would take a board who are kind of conspicuous by their absence in terms of communication at the moment, it would take them to come out and publicly support him and say, yeah, we're going down, but Artel's the man to take us back up in League 2 last season, just as he's done before. I think that would give clarity, but kind of crucially, it would allow him to gain his confidence back we've seen a bullish Dave Artell, who knows his team is good who knows they're being underestimated and it's a really powerful thing and it's a great thing that would give him some confidence and that authority because at the moment it's just a slow sad death and I think you know they've they've still got 16 games to go so if they don't sort something out it's going to get even worse over the next few weeks and it's it's very tough for him um, recruitment has certainly not been good enough but I think we would always point to the fact that Losing the likes of Perry and G, Harry Pickering, Owen Dale, Ryan Wintle and Charlie Kirk in the space of 18 months is, is always going to be just desperately difficult. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's a take on a difficult situation. Lastly, Cheltenham 2, Fleetwood 0. Uh, Cheltenham hadn't won for 11 before this week, uh, but seven of them have been draws. I think that the sense was they weren't playing quite as badly as that run suggested. Two wins out of two, beating Sunderland, beating Fleetwood very comfortably. It was absolutely a Mike Duff, Cheltenham 2-0 home win uh, that we've seen a lot over the last three years. Very pleasing. And Alfie May, four goals in three games. Him and Keon Atete on loan from Spurs, a real handful up front at the moment. Uh, lastly in League One, George, we've got to talk about Alex Neal being appointed at Sunderland. Uh, last week, we talked about Roy Keane being heavily rumoured, uh, but that fell through. And then there's a lot of... Dismay about how long this search was taking. Eventually, Neil appointed on Friday night took the team at Wimbledon on Saturday. Uh, it was a one-all draw. What do you make of Alex Neil's appointment at Sunderland?
1: I'm, I'm all for it, if I'm honest. Um, you know that we can't sit here and say whether or not Roy Keane would have been a good or bad appointment. Um, my. What I can sit here and say is there is much more evidence that Alex Neil will be a good long-term appointment for Sunderland and Roy Keane. Um, Keane is a very popular figure there because of what he's managed to do at uh, the club in the past. Um, you know, He obviously took a, a Sunderland side who started the season incredibly poorly and got them promoted in one season. When you look at the squad that he had at his disposal um, and the expectations of that side beforehand, it wasn't a massive surprise that he did that. He then went to Ipswich um, and didn't do a particularly um, good job at town. You know, This is a guy with a a fairly checkered managerial history. He hasn't managed a game of football for nine years. Um, Ten years. Eleven years.
0: Alex Neal's managed 300 games in English football since since Roy Keane last managed a game in English football. And And that's not including... Uh, his two years at Hamilton.
1: And Alex Neal, you know, I I was I was tweeting about this on um, Thursday night last week when it was all kind of happening. And I, w- I was kind of surprisingly um, happy about how many Sunderland fans seem to kind of agree that this is, you know, when you get rid of the emotional, emotional part of Keane's return to Sunderland, there is clearly something very positive about Alex Neal and what he has achieved in the past, both at Norwich and at Preston. Um, I think there are some, also some, people who've completely misread his Preston tenure um, in a way that I can't really believe. Um, you know, he was sacked with the club in 16th place, which was their lowest, well, except for one hellish start to the, to the season where Preston were absolutely terrible, but the club kept the faith in him, and then he led them up towards the playoffs. Um, the 16th was their lowest position, um, pretty much in, in terms of his whole managerial reign and it saw him get...
0: never had a wage budget above 16th out of 28?
1: 24 i would say less you know i'd say 16 is always going to be an overachievement there um and the idea that because he had them ninth and seventh the drop-off was his fault it's just a classic case of being a victim to your own your own um achievements and the expectations that your achievements set he is someone who in my opinion the the kind of downward trajectory of his career is incredibly unfair, given um his first job in, in England was taking Norwich up. He's a manager who his future managerial history belongs above League One level. And that's what you want. As I said a couple of weeks ago, you want to hire a manager who can take you, who can take your club up with them as they rise as they rise the ranks. And it might not be this season, um, given the top two look, looks like it's gone. But Neil is someone who has a track record of getting teams punching above their weight and if Sunderland punch above their weight in League One then they're getting promoted because there's nowhere really for them to go. Um, The absolute snobbery and the ignorance of the small minority of people who seem to think that Neil was beneath them is just totally symptomatic of the kind of attitude that has meant that Sunderland have been down in this division for the last four years. Um, (laughs) Going and hiring a guy who's done what he's done and saying he's not good enough for Sunderland Um, and some of them taking umbrage with the fact that both you and I have used the word coup to describe it. Of course, it's a coup because as big as Sunderland are, and of course, it's it's an unbelievable job for a manager to take on in Neil's position, given the potential that's there in the fan base and the strength of feeling and all the rest of it. But Sunderland have been a League One club now for four years. They haven't really looked like getting promoted for the last two years. For them to go and attract a manager who's never managed at this level and has done two very good jobs in the past in itself is a coup. And I don't think there's any other team in League One. Who probably could have attracted him, maybe Ipswich, but you have to wonder why they didn't um, a couple of weeks, months ago. Because taking McKenna over over Neil seems like a massive risk. He's 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 a top manager for the level. I think culturally it's a much better fit than Lee Johnson was. I think Lee Johnson coming in, just certain ways that he carries himself, um, the fact that he you know is from the south, <laughs> in itself, rather than Alex Neil, who is. Someone who doesn't take any prisoners at all in the way that he speaks. He's, you know, he he earns, I think, respect much quicker maybe than Johnson does uh, himself. I think it's a great appointment, and you know, if things don't improve over the coming couple of weeks, I hope it's not Neil who uh, is who has the finger pointed at him because there are quite clearly some some bigger problems at the club that have have led to the club being where they are now.
0: Yeah, I'd said it the first time we spoke about. Lee Johnson having been, been sacked, that I thought Alex Neil was the obvious choice. I said last week that I thought Alex Neil, I was confused as to why we were talking about Roy Keane and Alex Neil was still available. So clearly, I think he, he's the best choice for Sunderland, the best manager realistically available. Uh, clearly, not a, an optimal journey to get there, partly due to what I consider to be like really unhelpful leaks and that whole thing playing out with Keane in the public is just so suboptimal on so many levels and I, I don't necessarily know how you stop that when you're a club the size of Sunderland with so many people who want to talk about you but it's just it just completely takes away from from any process that you might have and then of course the fact that they were so poor in their games uh, while they didn't have a, a permanent manager that didn't help either with, with how the fans were viewing things so Christian Speakman Particularly has lost a lot of credit. Um, And, you know, I happen to think that they've ended up with the right destination, but obviously not a good journey to get there. I think the last thing I just want to say is I've seen quite a lot of Sunderland fans so upset with the poor results since Johnson got sacked that they're saying, like, well, either way, you know, because of what's happened in the last two weeks with those defeats, this season's done. But it's absolutely not done. Like, it couldn't be further from done. There are still 42 points to play for. Sunderland are in third place in the table. Whether or not they catch Wigan, and I happen to think they they easily, on a very basic footballing level, of course they can catch Wigan. You know, the, Wigan could have a poor run of form. Wigan might struggle with the amount of games that they have to play. Sunderland just need to put together a run and they'll be close to Wigan in no time. I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but the season is not done. The playoffs exist, and you've just hired a manager who's won a playoffs with Hamilton, who's won the playoffs with Norwich. Like, the season is not done whatsoever. Um, I think he looks sharp as well. Looks refreshed, rested, confident. I'm excited about mm. it. Having said that, they've got MK Dons coming to town on Saturday, which is a bit of a nightmare opponent because they are excellent and probably still a little under the radar. They've they've already won away at Wigan, at Wickham, at Portsmouth this season. MK Dons actually have a better record away from home than they do at home. So uh, not an easy start at the Stadium of Light, but I really hope, I really hope there's an incredible supportive atmosphere i think it'll make a big difference um league two i think over half the games were draws but some significant results in the games that weren't probably bradford nil X to one is is the story basically on both fronts george exter's incredible form continuing and bradford and Derek adams seemingly edging closer to a, a messy divorce
1: well i mean i wonder um the you know, the performances have been have been pretty poor, the results have been very poor, there's not much to suggest that Derek Adams is is even close to um to getting what he wants out of this side. But the way he's talking in the press, you know, the way he says if Bradford would to me and bring in another manager, there's no chance they can get someone in who's achieved what I've achieved. Quite a weird thing to say about yourself, but but probably true. Talking about how Bradford have had so many managers in recent years, nothing's worked. Is sacking another one going to gonna do anything? Again, quite a weird thing to say about yourself, but you can't really argue with it. Um, if, if if I was a Bradford fan, I can understand why you'd probably want Adams to go, but I'd be half tempted to write off this season and, and give a guy who's taken two clubs out of this league another chance. Um, that's my own take on it. He is a pretty abrasive character. I, I don't think he cares... At all, what fans think of him, which isn't really a trait you're going to look for as a fan of a football team, Um, and that comes across in his interviews. But you know, they come up against an extra side here who who were good on the day, who were a pretty good value for their win, Um, who look themselves like they might be able to break into the top six. Uh, And you know, for in terms of quality, there probably wasn't a great deal between the two, but but in the end, uh, to get the result that they that they deserved um, but the, what's going to happen in, in the next couple of weeks at Bradford is is definitely interesting because it's kind of similar to what I was saying about Sunderland the, the issues at Bradford are not um, down to Derek Adams yes he may be playing a part in them and whether or not he's the person who can you know there are managers out there who can manage football teams well even in um, difficult circumstances off the pitch look at what <laughs> Wayne Rooney is doing this season whether he's that man, I don't know. Um, but if I, I'd be pretty careful what you wish for as a Bradford fan because is there a chance that sacking a guy with with his um, his track history, you know, we, we've seen it happen before where teams in League 2 have done this and then pretty, pretty quickly um, they're looking over their shoulder rather than upwards. Um, so, yeah, Difficult times for for the Bantams.
0: Tough to come up against an extra team in some nick at the moment. Um, You know, Matt J was rested for this one, had to come on actually after 17 minutes, so it wasn't much of a rest. But uh, Matt Taylor sort of switching things up. Everything Matt Taylor's doing at the moment is working. Uh, you know, with, with Ndombe having been injured, he got in Zanzala. Zanzala started well, then Zanzala got injured. There was still a few days left of the window. They managed to get Phillips in, who'd previously been on loan at, uh, at Walsall, on loan from Huddersfield. Phillips gets his first goal here in winning this game. Really nice, kind of brave attacking play to nip in when the goalkeeper was rushing out and then composed finish to, to slot it home. I think they, they were... They were definitely good for it. You know, it's not that this was a battering by any means. Extra edging it in terms of of balance of play, of quality, of the way that they're carrying themselves at the moment, confidence, uh, and certainly defensively, uh, they're looking very very strong at the moment. They've they've kept six clean sheets in their last seven games. Their only goal they've conceded was. On the fifth against swindon and that was a kind of shot from range which skidded in from tomlinson nice strike from range and i sort of think you know six clean sheets in seven games that's not going to last forever and it probably won't but also george it's not the case where you look at the underlying numbers and you're like oh they're getting battered they're just getting lucky here poor finishing not at all they're looking at y scout in this time where they've kept six clean sheets no team has generated more than 0.65 xg in a single game against them so I mean, it's working, that's for sure. A lot of credit's going to, to um, the defence, particularly Stubbs and the youngster Czech Diabate, 20-year-old academy graduate, who's come in uh, for this run, basically, and been sensational. Scored a couple of goals as well. Um, they've been excellent. I dare say there's probably a lot of credit that needs to go to the midfield as well, uh, to Archie Collins, to Timothy Dieng, Uh, to Kite as well who started this game but came off injured so uh, it's just all working really well it's reflecting very well on Matt Taylor at the moment Uh, they're a bit streaky extra aren't they because they you know they've already rattled off a club record unbeaten run uh, in uh, September October November this season then they didn't win for six in the league Um, but now they look very very strong and with Nombe back from injury coming off the bench in the last few games um, it's, a, it's a good time to be a Grecian. They were the only team in the top seven to win as well. So uh, very significant, valuable points. Swindon took three off Scunthorpe, scoring three goals at the county ground. Um, mentioned on the betting show, they'd won only three games out of 14 at home. So it, it's significant just to, to to tick that number up a bit. It's not good enough when you're not winning in front of your fans. Um, they've not had it easy with injuries, Swindon. And there's there's been a, a few references, which I think are fair references uh, to the fact that them basically putting this team together by hook or by crook the week before the season started meant they they basically didn't have a pre-season. Their pre-season was the start of the league season. And I think, you know, I'm no sports scientist, but I think in terms of, you know, muscles and injuries and conditioning and whatnot, that's probably suboptimal. So maybe some of these injuries are, are a part of that. But we did see Josh Davison get his first goals for the club. He's kind of filling the Tyree Simpson shoes after his recall to Ipswich. Uh, Louis Barry... Started his first game off the left, looked very lively. Iandolo was man of the match with a great assist for McCurdy, who, I mean, I would, I would have taken his temperature midweek to check for illness because he didn't have a single shot against Tramier in that 3-0 defeat after having 8, 3, 5, 7, 4, 6, 7, 3. Didn't even pull the trigger at all against Tramier, then had four shots here and scored. Kind of somewhat surprised Three Swindon
1: players had more shots than him as well. Tomlinson, Tomlinson had five, Davidson had five, Barry had five.
0: And it sounds like a battering.
1: Shots, 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 shots. Yeah, but,
0: but JoJo, eh? Keith Hill was really positive after this. Like, really well, I mean, positive.
1: Wallacott made a lot of saves.
0: Wallacott made a lot of saves. skunthorpe were good for a 3-0 defeat in a weird way. Um, and Keith Hill, I was surprised. I sort of expected to hear someone downbeat, someone accepting their predicament, um, being cut adrift at the bottom of League Two. Far from it. Keith Hill's still fighting, and he, he kind of G'd me up, to be honest. So I'm not... I'm not getting too negative about Scunthorpe after this performance, despite the three nil scoreline. I might be getting negative about Leighton Orient, George. Uh they lost two nil at home to Salford. I realised that since we went to watch them beat Swindon four one, that did you leave a curse yeah. on it mm. on because we is. were we were like, wow, these guys are good. Smith and Trinidad yeah. are good, aren't they? Good wing backs, good solid defensive unit, good side. Since then, two points in nine games and only two goals scored. It's a hard one to understand when you've seen them smash Swindon in the flesh.
1: Yeah, mate. I just cursed it. I just left. Um, I left the boot of Lee Steele when he when he relegated Oxford uh, back in two thousand whenever under a, under a chair, and that was it. Um, yeah, I don't really know what to say about them. Um, I guess I always, given I always crow whenever people say that Kenny Jackett isn't a negative manager. Well, um, things aren't going too well for
0: you. Need to eat humble pie.
1: Uh well, I, I wouldn't go that far. Um I think the you know, the argument's always been when a Kenny Jacket side is playing well, they score lots of goals so rather than Kenny Jacket sides always score lots of goals. Um and at the moment they are they are not playing well. And it's kind of hard to put your finger on why. Um for a side. I mean, we mentioned before that maybe Smith and um Dryden having purple patches alongside each other may not have been ideal and now neither can seemingly find the net unless they're offside uh doesn't help. Uh, nobles come in and hasn't really done anything of note so far um they've switched to a 4 at the back which doesn't seem to be working it's a shame to see Shadrach Ogi back at a left back rather than left at the 3 um you know they're they're just obviously operating at a at a pretty low level at the moment and they haven't um, created they to find a way.
0: more than one expected goal in a game in this nine league game period so again it's not necessarily the case that they they've been particularly unlucky or that their finishing's been particularly poor the it's all just fallen off a cliff. Fewer shots in the league in that time, fewer shots on target in that time. And where previously, I think after like a quarter of the season, they probably had the best defensive record in terms of XG against from open play. There's been slippage on that front as well. So it's pretty desperate. You you know, the manager, sorry, the chairman, Nigel Travis, gave Jacket the sort of vote of confidence this week. And, you know, you and I generally, because we lack the sort of sentimental attachment to bad runs of form. I think sometimes we do lean towards like, See if you can ride it out, you know. See if you can be brave and ride it out, which most people don't do because it's not going to last forever. Very unlikely to last forever. But with each poor performance, it obviously it just chips away at you. Um, being at home by a Salford side, I do want to flag up George that over the last three months uh, they've picked up the fourth the fourth most points in League Two. So we might need to just tweak a little bit of our Salford ratings. Um, they've mm. they've still only won back to back games once this season. Uh, but they're home to Crawley this weekend, and they'll fancy going back to back again. And if they do, I think you know, I think we will be talking about them a little bit more seriously, probably on the Monday pod. At the moment, they're tenth, uh, four points off the playoffs, so still a bit of work to do. But certainly in in better form, improving well, and could be a bit of a dark horse. Uh, only eleven points between Horses. second and tenth in League Two, so another intriguing division as we approach the final few furlongs. Uh, Walsall <laughs> one, Tranmere nil. Uh, this one was, uh, well, it was a culmination of a, a busy week for Walsall, wasn't it? Who sacked Matt Taylor after defeat to Scunthorpe meant seven league defeats in a row. Uh, and then they went and beat the team second in the league straight up, which is uh, a classic.
1: Mate, Tranmere fans must have left being like, I don't understand. We, it was a really tight game and we lost. What? How does, how does that happen? The, that sugge-
0: the suggestion there being that Tranmere's games have almost always been very tight, but they've almost always
1: won them. Correct. Um, Yeah, this is, I guess, just a bit of, this was going to happen, basically. Um, In in no way did Warsaw um, blitz Tranmere. It was a game of of very few chances and it was a really poor bit of defending, um, if we're honest, from Peter Clark, someone who we don't expect this from, where he firstly skewed a ball miles up in the air and then just, took the man out um, for the penalty. And it was it's pretty rare that you see someone giving away a penalty in the 85th minute and rather than turning around and, and trying to tell the referee it wasn't a penalty before the referee even blew, he knew and he smacked the ground in anger. Um, and Wilkinson put the pen away um, for what is a big three points for Walsall, what is uh, going to be frustration for Tranmere? who will feel like off the back of their good run. Um, they didn't expect to go to a Walsall side and, 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 and lose. Um, this is the classic case of not a new manager bounce but just Walsall being on the receiving end of some sweet, sweet variants as mm. something goes their way uh, and Chandler I'm sure will bounce back from this um, as we've kind of said Chandler and Mansfield are both due um, a, a pretty poor run and this might be the start of Chandler dropping a few points Interesting to see where Walsall go next it, it's the it's a club that have maybe
0: in a slightly less dramatic way as, as others such as Southend dare I say it uh, or maybe even Scunthorpe have really declined pretty consistently uh, in footballing terms over the last few years. I know that, and I do mention it quite a lot because it, it saddens me. I know that the the match day experience now at the Best is so poor as to basically be non-existent. Fans just avoid getting there until three o'clock, and they just go in, watch the watch the game, and go home. It's just there's there's a real malaise around the place, and I think generally the the feeling was it's it was still fair to sack matt taylor after seven defeats in a row losing to scunthorpe you know that the idea of dropping out of the football league altogether is something that, that generally sparks uh chairman into to pulling triggers but you know the the question for me is always okay well what's the plan now because they they've got a director of football in jamie fullerton they said all the nice things that you say in the summer when appointing a director of football and appointing a, a rookie manager um with with coaching uh, experience at an elite academy um, they made what looked to be some interesting recruitment which doesn't look so good now and, and that's always quite a hard one to measure uh, until you're a few years out I dare say some of the players they recruited might end up having good, better careers elsewhere it, it's it's always kind of a hard one to measure but you know my main feeling is you need to decide whether you're going to, to stick with your bravery or whether you're just going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because <laughs> you've got your director of football in you gave it the big guns about you know a young coach being supported with good recruitment, developing a style of play. The, the style of play never really developed. Now, that's a bit of a chicken-and-the-egg thing. Like When you're not winning games, styles of play, it's not great conditions to raise a young style of play, is it? It's tough conditions. So the, rea- the reality has kicked in. They've sacked that manager. So what's next now? Are you now scared of young managers? You know, are you in this search for another manager, crossing off anyone that doesn't have experience? Uh, of managing an EFL club, even though every manager is different, every rookie manager is different? Does that mean you're turning towards more of an old-school type, someone that hashtag knows the division with a different style of play, <laughs> someone who might not be keen on on an overarching recruitment strategy looking at the long term with a director of football? In which case, where does that leave your director of football? It's These are the decisions that owners have to make, and I think since the sort of director of football craze, and, you know, clearly we do believe that if you get a structure right, it's worth having people on on that sort of level helping a manager, helping the football side of a, uh, the football operations side of a club. But we see it across League One and League Two. There are clubs that have directors of football that I'm not sure really know why they have them. Um, and I always see mm. the, the Walsall owner doing these nice videos. He explains his decisions to fans. He fronts up. It's a tough thing to do. I really appreciate it. I applaud him for his communication. But unfortunately, either he or the people he's employing you know, or the overriding strategy for running the club doesn't yet have the club moving in the right direction, even if it always sounds quite nice and sensible. That it, it's just not having any impact. So, uh, interesting one to watch at Walsall. Last but not least, I did not see Hartleypool beating Crawley, did I, George? Because I picked Crawley to win on the betting show. Hartleypool's uh, away record was well, no wins in seven since the left. Uh, in fact, since the left, they'd had the worst record in League Two in that time. So I, I was projecting them as one of the worst teams in League Two. But they went to Yems' men. They picked up a 1-0 win. And Yems, as you can imagine, was not very happy.
1: <laughs> no. Red card for Yemsy wasn't it? It was, mate. Um, it was. Do we know how many he's had? I'd like to know. Omar Bogle fouled in front of the dugout, given some verbals from Yemsy and Lee Bradbury, his assistant. 20 seconds later, scores with a lovely finish. You know, I've never been Omar Bogle's biggest fan Um but I think scoring goals in League Two is probably where he where he should be playing his football. And it looks like he's going to do that a fair bit. And he runs over um, to Yems and Bradbury <laughs> to celebrate in front of them. Uh, and they have immediately walked back into their dugout, backs turned. And the Yems, he jumps on on the gaffer uh, to celebrate. Uh, yeah, a good a good moment. Um as I say, Bogle with, with the one moment of quality and what was a pretty poor game. Crawley for so long, so good at home under John Yems, seemed to have done a complete. Reverse, where they just cannot perform at home and are very good on the road um they are still the team that baffled me more than any other in the EFL Crawley I know I, I I don't understand their style of play why they win or lose games why they're good or bad at home what the kind of philosophy is just that sometimes um Nichols and Madison can be really good that's about but that's about it. And and they've got a decent keeper.
0: <laughs> what I kind of enjoyed hearing was that Graham Lee, the Hartlepool manager, who'd have every right to be delighted, was not happy at all with the performance, made it very clear in his in his post-match, which I thought was quite mm. lively. Um, just didn't think his team played very well. So Crawley really must have played poorly. Um, and yet you've got one Bogle story. I've got another Bogle story. Um, the day before the game, they trained in, in Derby, you know, break up the journey from Hartlepool to Crawley. Yeah, nice. Lovely. And uh, the players... I believe all had driven there in their own cars from wherever they live, trained in Derby. And then the plan was to meet in a nearby service station where the players would leave their cars, get in the bus and go down to Crawley for the night before the game. Omar Bogle either hadn't received or hadn't listened to that particular missive and drove back north to Hartlepool in his car. And then they were like, Omar, where where are you, mate? We're we're waiting for you on the bus. He's like, oh. I was just driving back. I thought we were going back to Hartlepool tonight. No, no, we're going to Sussex. Turn around. So he had to drive all the way there in his car on his own. (laughs) Amazing. And then scored the winner while winding up John Yance. It's a great story. Well done, Omar Bogle. Good place to finish. There were seven draws in League Two. Um, There were lots of of lively ones. But as you know, uh, unless a result really moves the needle... We leave it out. So we're back again next week. I'm sure we'll have some some pretty good stuff to chat about in League 2 in all the EFL divisions, which continue to be a delight to to cover. Uh, So thank you for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to the pod. Give it a share if you've enjoyed this breakdown of the weekend action. It's been the Not The Top 20 podcast Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair. Huge thanks to them for their continued support of this pod. Uh, As for you, enjoy the midweek action and go well.